And tonight we'll be looking at uh, Genesis chapter 19. I'm going to keep reading from chapter 20, uh, chapter 19, verse 23 onwards to get a full picture of the context. So Genesis chapter 19, verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, The smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. When the firstborn went in and lay with her father, he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Let us ask God to bless his word read and preached. O Lord, we thank you now for your word. As it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, may it be just that now as we hear and as we hear well. For Jesus' sake, amen. Sometimes you uh, read stories in the Bible and you think, uh, this, this, seems, this seems incredibly strange. Um, and what's interesting is Genesis 19 at one time seems strange to me. You know, it's so crazy. Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's daughters. But wouldn't you say that you can actually believe a lot more in the Bible when you look at the world we live in right now. You know, maybe you grew up in a nice little neighborhood where kids were on their bikes and they dinged their bell when they were driving by a little old lady so that she didn't get run over and the postman knew your name and so on. And you read Genesis 19 and you go, come on now, this is crazy. Or you grow up and you're 
a teenager now and you read this and you go, yeah, well, I could tell you a few stories myself of things I know and read. See, my point is that as we live longer in this world and as the world tends to go to moral degeneracy on so many levels, stories like Genesis actually show you what human beings can really get up to. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. Now, Lot is a person where I think there could be some serious psychological analysis done on this guy alone. He's, uh, of all the Bible characters, he's definitely uh, one of the more interesting figures, especially because you read the New Testament and you find out that Lot is described as a righteous man whose soul was vexed at what he saw going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you just read chapter 19, for example, you might think Lot is a crazy man. So how do we make sense of that? Now, I think chapter 18 and chapter 19 are delicately placed beside each other because you get the story of Abraham and you get the story of Lot. And if Abraham is the father of the faithful, Lot might be well called the father of those who are scarcely saved. And why do I say that? Well, if you look at the stories, they're quite interesting the way they're juxtaposed with one another. So in the case of Abraham, you, we haven't read chapter 18, but the angels arrive in the day to Abraham, but they arrive in the evening to Lot. And then Abraham's at the tent entrance and Lot is at the city gate. And then both scenes, there's the arrival of the messengers, the angels, there's a greeting, and then there is a meal. And Abraham and Lot are both hospitable, but the Sodomites are not. And Ezekiel 16 picks up on the problem of hospitality in Sodom, not just the sexual problems, but the problems of general decency. Now, Abraham seems to be a model host, but Lot is what we might call a fumbling failure when it comes to how things worked out. Uh, Sarah helps in the instance of Abraham, but if you look at chapter 19, And chapter 18, Sarah helps, but Lot's wife doesn't help. She's nowhere to be found. Now, you might just think, well, let's not read into too much. But clearly, when you see Sarah helping Abraham in the previous chapter, and then you see Lot's wife is nowhere to be found when he prepares a meal, maybe something is going on with his wife. Also, what you see is that Sarah and Lot's wife both express unbelief, but there's actually different outcomes for both. Uh, Sarah is not turned into a pillar of salt and judged, but Lot's wife is. In fact, there's a few other interesting parallels because Sarah laughs at God's promise. And in chapter 19, saw Lot's sons-in-law jest. They think he's jesting. They laugh at the fact that he says God is going to judge So there's laughter in both chapters. And then Abraham pleads for the just based on God's character in chapter 18. And Lot asks for Zoar out of self-interest. I want to go to that city. I don't want to go here. You've just been saved from fire and brimstone. And then also you'll notice that Abraham gives to his guests. But uh, in the next chapter, Sodom wants to take from their guests. Now, what are the evils of those in Sodom? You can see a few things in chapter 19, but you will see Lot's reception. 
And as I said, his wife doesn't help with the meal. She's nowhere to be found. And what is so amazing about chapter 19 is this is not a story that really develops. You know, you have you ever read a big book and you need to really read a few chapters or sections and slowly but surely the story develops? I've heard my wife, she reads these big, thick novels and talks to someone about it. She says, oh, it's a little bit slow, but it got good at the end. You can't read the story of Lot and Solomon Gomorrah and say, yeah, it took time to develop. These guys come to his house, angels, and he asks them to enter his house, and they have a feast, but before they have a chance to lie down, the next thing, men of the city, men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surround the house. What are they doing? This is a good start. Maybe they've come to greet them. Maybe they've come to show hospitality. Maybe they've come to do these things. But clearly not. Because as we keep on reading, they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, the violation of the guests and this unnatural lust is what we would term homosexual rape here. This is male-to-male rape. Bring them out that we may know them. This is not consensual. And what we find in terms of the capital punishments, this was a capital punishment in Israel. Now, there are other sins that go on in Sodom. So I don't want you to just think about this in terms of the sexual sins, but in terms of the social oppression. There was social oppression according to Isaiah chapter 1. A lot of prophets pick up on what went on in Sodom. There's adultery, there's lying, and there's abetting the criminal in, Gen- in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 14. There's arrogance and complacency and showing no pity to those who are in need. So when these people arrive outside of Lot's house and they want to have homosexual relations with these men, this is not a society that is otherwise functioning well and doing good things. The degeneracy of society will have many different ways in which it expresses itself. Sexuality is one symptom of the problem. That is what we find with Sodom. Now, you will also find that very often there is an issue of control and power. That is what goes on with rape. It is not just a lust issue, it is a control or power issue. Now, when you think about the control or the power that is being exercised here by these people, you have to understand that that is ultimately something unnatural about the sexual relations when you see a control issue. And what I mean by that is that very often sexual relations that are outside of the boundaries of marriage are wrapped up not just in lust but in control. It can be from the female side, it can be from the male side. Issues of power and greed, not just lust. And we tend to understand sexuality a little bit 
uh, incoherently when we don't see it as wrapped up with many other societal sins. So if you see sexual sins in our society as going askew, you should find that there are other things in society going askew. I was um, driving to church and I was behind this car with so many stickers on the back. It was interesting because there are a lot of stickers. One of the stickers was vaccine save lives and there were hearts on the other side. But there was the, the, the Black Lives Matter fist. There was the gay pride flag. There was all of these different, you know, you would expect these types of stickers. And I thought, all right, well, you know, I'm going to just stay behind this person and just kind of get a feel for these stickers, see if I can learn a thing or two. And uh, I'm driving to church and, you know, there's hearts on the back of the car. I mean, this is a good person. And what's interesting is as I'm driving, no sooner have I zeroed in all of these stickers, but someone didn't let her into the lane. The next minute, the window's down and the middle finger's coming up out of the window. And I thought, well, you know, I shouldn't be surprised. I should not be surprised. And the problem with having stickers on your car or things on your car that identify you is that you have to live up to that. You don't see a fish on the back of my car. (laughs) Maybe it would help, but I'm not going to have a fish on the back of my car. It's too much pressure. (laughs) But the point I hope that we can see is that Sodom is a bad place. It is a place where homosexual rape is threatened, but it is a place where there was basic common decency and moral values that we would expect from uh, anyone made in the image of God that have been tossed aside. Now, we have to look a little bit at Lot, because Lot comes out to the men in verse 6 at the entrance, but he shuts the door after him. And he says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. He identifies that this really is a wicked thing. But then... Scholars have usually, in verse 8, thought, well, now he's going for the lesser of two evils. So the lesser of two evils in this instance, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, let's assume that Lot is a normal human being. And let's assume that he loves his daughters. And it's hard to understand exactly the nature of the relationship and the context and the culture. But if two men came to my house and I had to decide between them and my daughters, I'm sorry, gentlemen, (laughs) I'm not offering my daughters in your place, even though the sexual sin of sodomy is a more aggravating sin than heterosexual lust. But the problem is, when you start to do that and to think, what would I do in this and that, you maybe miss something. And so recently, scholars have basically looked at the New Testament interpretation of Lot, tried to figure out what's going on here, and many think that this was just Lot's fumbling attempt to buy time. And look at what ends up happening. They said, stand back. Stand back. And they said, this fellow, now, you notice Lot has lost his name? He doesn't have a name anymore. He's this fellow. This fellow came to sojourn 
and he has become judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. This illustrates it is an issue of not just lust, but power. They want control of the situation. Lot has attempted to take the control from them and make things on his terms. They're not happy with that. They want to be in control of the situation, and they get angry because that is what happens with people who always want to be in control. When they don't get their way, they get angry. Stand back. This fellow has come to sojourn. He's a visitor, and now he's become a judge. We're going to deal worse with him. They pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Well, the angels eventually intervene in verse 11. They struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. That could be young and old. So that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Now I understand that to mean something akin to what we heard earlier. They have been struck with blindness even in their act of perversion and it doesn't totally stop them. They don't go, oh, oh, yeah, this is a bad thing. I should walk away from this. They wear themselves out while they're blind because they're still trying to do the thing they came to do. The madness of sin is such that even when you face a judgment, sin so blinds you that you will continue to do the thing that you've just been judged for. And that's why it is so scary. Then verses 12 to about 22 highlight Lot's salvation of sorts. So God is concerned with the family. You see that? Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. Anyone who is identified with Lot is to be saved. And then they explain why. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And the word for destroy there is actually the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 6 describing God's destruction of the world through the flood. This is another type of destruction that is going to happen. Now what's sad is that Lot goes out to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and says, up, get out of this place For the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. They wouldn't believe him. And this may be a case of Lot not having the gravity of moral character so that they would believe him. This may mean they are just wicked people who don't believe that God is a judge. I'm inclined towards the latter. They simply don't believe God will judge. They believe God is a God only of love And so they thought he was joking. But then as the morning dawns, the angels urged Lot, saying, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. So the family unit, the basic family unit, is saved. Remember with Noah? Were all of his sons righteous? No. Were Lot's daughters righteous? No. Was his wife righteous? No. But for one man who appears to have been godly, many were saved. One righteous man. And even he had his issues. But he lingered. 
And that is a telling sign of where Lot may be spiritually at this point. He lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him up outside the city. Lot has been told God is going to destroy the city. Lot has seen these men outside his door get blinded in judgment that comes from God, trying to rape his visitors who are with them, and yet Lot still wants to linger in Sodom? What you need to do right now is think about how much we can love the world, even though we know the world is evil. How much we can love sin, but know its destruction. Lot lingered, and he had already seen a type of judgment, and he had been warned by angels themselves, and he lingered. And verse 17, as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And that word escape or flee is actually in three Hebrew letters, MLT. And Lot's name is LT. And there's a connection there between Lot and escaping. In other words, Lot is to escape. Lot is to live up to his name. Now, do not look back. As you were lingering, do not look back. Do you see those little words there? Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Do you see how God can sometimes say something and people can disregard what is a very clear commandment? That is why I say to people when it comes to theology, there's certain things that are very clear. We should actually just make sure we do those. There's other things that aren't clear. We can have some debate, but when it's clear, I don't know why people try to mess around. It's like when intinction became popular and people were dipping bread into the wine and it was all soggy and gross and they thought this is a cool way of doing the Lord's Supper. And I'm like, why would you do that? It's so obvious. You eat and then you drink. There's two sacramental acts. Why do you have to confuse the plain stuff? Let's go somewhere else to Armageddon and debate whether it's on the plains of Megiddo or not. But People do this. They, they, they make complicated, simple things. And Lot's wife is told not to look back. So what ends up happening? Lot says to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster take overtake me and die. So they are saving his life and telling him where to go, and he's saying, Okay, I'll take the saving of my life, but don't tell me where to go. There's so much going on here. If someone is about to save your life, do you become Lord of them? Again, this is how Christians can be when it comes to salvation. Christ saves us, but then we still want to tell Him a few things about how we're going to live our life, what we're going to do. He is the Lord. Now, amazingly, what will sometimes happen is God will be merciful to us even in our rebellion. So he says, Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? The emphasis there of a little one, and my life will be saved. So he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, and I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city is called Zoar, which means little. Now, this argument that goes on 
finalizes itself in God destroying Sodom. So notice there's actually a lot here that's reminiscent of the flood narrative. There's divine acts and destruction upon sinners. Only the righteous and their families are saved. God rains down judgment from the heavens and uh, God or angels, God in the case of no angels, shut the door and save the righteous from destruction. And there's drunkenness and sexual immorality. Everything that went on in Genesis 6 to 8 is here in Genesis 19, which again tells you something about humans. They will make the same mistakes. Now the sun had risen and notice what happens. Maybe it was an earthquake, we don't know. But the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But look at this interesting little detail here. Lot's wife behind him. Why was she behind him, given the context? What had Lot done? He lingered. What was she doing? She was lingering. She was behind him, and she looked back. So when you see that she looked back, I think behind him, which comes before that, is a sign that her heart was still in Sodom. So when she looked back, the lingering was the sign that she still hadn't left Sodom. She looks back, and she became a pillar of salt. She clearly disobeyed a commandment of God. And if God were to say, do not look to the left, and you look to the left, you deserve death because he's God. Do not eat from a tree. People eat from the tree. What is it about us as human beings where God gives us simple commandments and yet we still disobey them? Did God ask Adam and Eve to come up with the new laws of physics in the garden? No. His commandments aren't burdensome. They save Lot and his family, and they say, don't look back. Is that asking a lot? I want you to just understand something. When God asks us to do something, he doesn't ask us to do things that are unreasonable. But we still do it, and we still sin. And she looks back and becomes a pillar of salt. And if you want further reading on Lot's wife, just read J.C. Ryle, Holiness. Remember Lot's wife. Not before you go to bed would be my suggestion, but probably not when you wake up would be my other suggestion. Try lunchtime. You have enough time to get your day going and then calm down. So God's judgment happens on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, uh, there's so much more to say, but I want you to just uh, consider that Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 17, verse 26, remember Lot's wife. And maybe we'll just close by focusing on a few points to do with Lot's wife before ever looking at Lot and his daughters. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus doesn't actually say, as far as I know, remember Abraham or remember David. He says, remember Lot's wife. He could have said, remember David. He could have said, remember Abraham. He could have said, remember Noah. But he says, remember Lot's wife. Now, who was Jesus speaking to when he said that? The Pharisees? No. Who is he speaking to? His disciples. Remember Lot's wife to his disciples. Why? Because she had religious privileges. She was being saved. She was with a righteous man. Angels had come to them. They were rescuing them. They had religious privileges. And remember Lot's wife because she had a specific disregard 
for God's law. Remember Lot's wife. And remember Lot's wife because there was judgment inflicted upon her. As one of the Puritans says, and they say this so eloquently, that look was a little thing, but it revealed the true character of Lot's wife. Do not look. Do not look back. Just a little look, and you see everything about that person in a sense. There's probably something called critical race theory that you've heard of. And if you've heard of it, good for you. Uh, And you can study it, and you can be concerned about it. And critical race theories, like many other theories that come and go, there was the emergent church theory that came. Anyone remember the emergent church? Yeah, nobody talks about it anymore. These things come and they go. They get exposed for what they are. They fall. They, they, they rise and fall, these, these theories. And I'm worried that some people get so hot and bothered about something like critical race theory that they forget that the problem of pornography in the church today is rife and it is rampant. And the same rule applies to looking. Do not look. Do not look. No little looks, no big looks, no medium looks. Do not look. That's what God's saying. And it's everywhere in the church. Do not look. God judged Lot's wife, turned her to a pillar of salt because of one look. And one little look can ruin your life because one little look becomes another look and another look and another look. And you're caught in an avalanche of looks so that your whole life now becomes defined by looks and your brain is hardwired for those looks and you become a completely different person in a manner of speaking. Do not look. Don't do it. It reveals the true character of a person. The Puritan, he didn't say all that, by the way. He says, that look was a little thing, but it told of disobedience in Lot's wife. That look was a little thing, but it told of proud unbelief in Lot's wife. That look was a little thing, but it told of secret love of the world in Lot's wife. Sometimes it's a little thing that can actually reveal a lot. Do not look. Now, just in conclusion, there's a few points I had here, but time is gone. I want you to understand, Lot is typical, and so is his wife of many Christians, many professing Christians. Lot fails as a host, a citizen, a husband, a father. He wants to protect, but he ends up being protected. He tries to save his family, but they think he's joking. He's afraid of the mountains. He pleads for a little town. Afraid of the town, he flees to the mountains. He's, he's, he's not a great, outstanding human being, and yet he was saved by God's mercy. That's very good news for some of you, isn't it? There's a few of us in here where we go, oh yeah, I love Lot. You know when they do, who's your favorite Bible character? Ah, Abraham, the father of the faithful. David. Some of you need to say Lot. Right? I like him. Because if he can be saved as a bumbling fool like that, there's hope for me. The point is, 
And we have to remember this. There are Christians out there who do not inspire a lot of confidence. But God saves them anyway. God saved Lot. And Lot had every reason to not be saved. He did his best not to be saved. But he was saved. But Lot is also like many Christians because he does live a little too close to the world. And he he lingered for a while because he remembers Sodom. He remembers Gomorrah. But he's like many in the church. He's like many sitting here. He's like you and he's like me. There's still a lot or a little of the world left in his heart. There was a little boy. He kept falling out of bed at night. Maybe you've heard this story. And the mother says to him, why does this keep happening, son? You keep falling out of the bed. And he says, I stay too near to the place where I get in. And you see, we like to keep one foot sometimes in the world and one foot in the church. And one foot in the church appeases our conscience. And one foot in the world appeases our flesh. And you get to have both. That's the dangerous thing. You, when you walk out of here tonight, I, I think when you walk out, think about how half of you might be in this church, but the other half of you might be outside. And that we actually like that. We like our conscience appeased. We are Christians. We come, but we also know that our flesh is powerful and we want to give a little bit to that. Do not look. Do not give in. And Lot gets himself into a lot of trouble. And you see the fine line between Lot's salvation and his wife's damnation? It's not like one's an outstanding, perfect human being and the other one's just a horrible... It's not like that. The line is quite fine between receiving the mercy of God and those who do not. So don't take my exposition on Lot as a license for you to be a mess. Don't forget God's mercy, but also remember that of the two, one was saved, one was not. Of those beside Christ at the final hour, one was saved, one was not. And so what is the solution? It comes down to the principle of Lot's wife. Do not look. So what do you do? You look. You look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That is what you're to do. You are to look, but you're to look to Christ and him crucified. You're not to look to the world. You're not to look to that illicit image. You're not to look to anything else that will draw your heart away from Christ. You are to look to Christ and only Christ. And only then will you receive the mercy of God and be saved from this present evil age. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, help us to look in the right place. Not back, but forward. Forward to who is going to return. Not down, but up. Up to who is seated in the heavenly places. O Lord, may our looking be the looking that you desire of each and every one of us, whereby we look upon Christ, crucified, resurrected, and seated in glory. Amen.